everybody. Great to see you in the house today. And if you're with us online, thank you for joining us online. And we are back in our series called Indivisible. In 1776, just after the Declaration of Independence was signed, three men formed a committee to design a seal for the new, new uh, nation and also to create a motto for the new nation. Uh, those three men, John Adams, John, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, all had different ideas about what the seal should look like. Adams wanted to incorporate uh, the, the choice of Hercules, which is kind of a drawback to secular literature. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wanted to depict God leading the Israelites with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, showing how God was leading this new nation. Uh, Benjamin Franklin wanted to picture Moses standing uh, uh, on the Red Sea, parting the sea as if God were parting away for the birth of this new nation. They all had different ideas. And by the way, all three of their ideas were ultimately rejected in creating that initial seal for the United States. However, the motto they came up with was all agreed upon and still appears today. The model they chose back then for our country, we see it on our dollar bills, we see it in our coinage, we see it even with the presidential seal. Every time the president speaks, that motto is there. The motto is the Latin phrase, e plurimus unum, which means literally out of many one, or many become one. And it's a statement of unity that out of these multiple colonies and multiple states, there, we are one nation. Now, what's interesting about that motto is that you could apply that motto to the church. Because as a church, we are many different people, yet we are one in Christ. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 5, we read this. We who are many are one body in Christ. So that motto even applies to us. And that's really what Jesus prayed for. We looked at this last week, that Jesus prayed for unity. He prayed for his body to be one, right? But how do we get to unity? How do we do that? Unity is really hard to come by. I mean, we're seeing it right now in our country, right? It's very hard for those of us, there are many, to really be one. And it certainly is even hard within the church for us to be lots of different people, but yet one in Christ. So how do we get to unity? You know, division is everywhere. It's in our country. But we see it also just in our own daily lives. We see a lot of division in our homes. We see a lot of division uh, between parent and child. We see a lot of division in our companies. We see a lot of division in uh, our schools. We see a lot of division in churches. We see division everywhere. How in the world do we ever get to unity like Jesus prayed for? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how we get to unity. All right, so when you get your Bible, open it up. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to land today. Ephesians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, let me just kind of set the stage here. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church at Ephesus. Apostle Paul was an early follower of Jesus, radically changed by Jesus. Um, it went from hating the church to planting churches. And he's writing, he's now in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. And he's writing a letter to the church that he started in Ephesus. Ephesus was a very metropolitan city, a very diverse city. Uh, if you think like LA or Chicago or New York today, it was like that, that kind of diversity. 
And so the church in itself was very diverse. And there was a lot of, lot of room for division within the Ephesian church. And so he writes this letter. And one of the themes that run all the way through the letter is the theme of unity. In chapter 1, he talks about God's desire and plan for us all to be one. And then all the way through the book, he talks about unity within between ethnic groups. He talks about unity within the church. He talks about unity within the home. All the way through, he talks about unity and what does that look like. And, but really, this passage we're looking at, Ephesians 4, is probably the best passage on how to get to unity. Not just that that's our aspirational goal, but how do we actually make it happen, okay? And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, today. So let's just jump right on into it. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. Uh, this is the Word of God. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope uh, at our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And everybody said, amen, amen. So let's look at verse, underline verse 3. Verse 3 is kind of the, the, the apex, the main idea, where he's headed. He talks about keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's the central idea. He's talking about unity. Unity, we've got we to have this. We've got to keep this. So the question is, how do we do it? So you want to back up to verse 1, and he's going to start ramping up on how do we get uh, to unity. And in verse 1, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Some versions say walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Look at your Bible. Does it say walk in a manner? Uh, hands up if it says walk. All right? Hands up. All right? Got a hand for you. How many of hands up say live a life worthy of the calling? Okay. So really, the Greek word there is literally to walk. It's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew, 5, Matthew 9, 5. Uh, it told a man to stand up and walk, a crippled man to stand up and walk. So it literally is the word walk. However, it's used in a metaphorical sense of the way you live your life. To walk in a manner worthy is to live a life that is worthy. All right? And so here's what he's saying. All the first three chapters have been talking about who you are in Christ, who you are in Christ, who you are in Christ, who you are in Christ. He's laid a theological foundation. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, now, now that you know who you are in Christ, you got to live this out. You got to walk this out. You got to put this into practical ways that you live. Don't just let it sit in your brain. But this is what I believe. This has got to be lived out. It's got to be walked out in your life. You've got to walk as Jesus did. 1 John 2, 6 says this, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did or must walk as Jesus walked. You, you and I have been called, get this, you and I have been called to live like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to pattern our life after Jesus, to take how he lived and to, and to, to follow him, to mimic him. To, to pursue what he wants us to do. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so Paul is saying, I want you to live your life like Jesus. Now listen, if you really do that, if you take that at face value and say, I want to align my life with the life of Jesus, you're going to live a very radical life. Radical. 
Now, when you hear the word radical, what comes to your mind? You probably think, you know, somebody that's real extreme, right? Somebody that's really on the fringes, somebody maybe even dangerous, right? A radical. And yet, I want you to understand that living like Jesus is radically different than how people are living today, all right? Even your own natural bent wants to go this way, but to live like Jesus is a radical turn. And that's what Paul's saying. Now, because you know who you are, because you know what Christ has done, you've got this. Now you've got you to gotta live this radically different life. And this radically different life is what's going to produce unity. This radically different way of living, which we're about to learn what it is, is going to move you toward unity. Here's a, here's a main idea I wanted to give you today. Unity depends on you. It depends on you. Unity in your home depends on you. Unity in your marriage depends on you. Unity at your school depends on you. Unity at work depends on you. Unity in your church depends on you. It depends on you. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, how, how does, in what way does it depend on you? How do we get to this unity you're talking about? Well, he gives us these three main radical things <laughs> that we got to incorporate in our life that are clearly seen in Jesus, but we have to work this out in our own life. So here, if you're taking notes, here's the first one I want you to write down. Unity depends on you, and the way you get there is, number one, through radical humility. Look at verse two. He says, he says you're to, to live this life with all Humility. See that? Circle the word humility in your Bible. The ancient world saw humility as a bad thing. John uh, Dickinson, in his book, Humilitas, which is a, a great book, it's all about the principle of humility. He really spells out that the Greeks and the Romans saw humility as a bad thing. It was like humiliation. It was like subjugation, right? It was like to be dominated. That's what humility was understood. Their view of greatness was honor. And honor was always shown by what you accomplished, right? Honor. In fact, one of the greatest examples of that that he mentions in that book is uh, uh, Emperor Augustus, who was the emperor when Jesus was born. Emperor Augustus was a man who sought honor. And in his seeking of honor, he, he inscribed in bronze tablets uh, 35 of his greatest accomplishments with the order that when he died that this bron these bronze uh, uh, plates were to be attached to his mausoleum so anybody that visited his grave would see all the things that he had accomplished. He also had it uh, transcribed and, and sent out throughout the Roman Empire so they could see what a great man he was by all of his great accomplishments. That was the mindset of that day. Honor, greatness is all about honor. Greatness is about accomplishment, right? But today, when you talk, we talk about humility, we see humility as a virtue. We say somebody is very humble, we think that's a good thing, right? Uh, we'll say a humility is a man that's of high position, that lures himself on behalf of another. That is a honorable thing, that's a good thing. So how do we get from it being a bad thing to get it being a good thing? And the answer to that is Jesus. Because when Christ came, he completely flipped the narrative of what greatness look like. He redefined greatness because Jesus being God descended into human form and humbled himself even to go to the cross. Why? For you and for me. That's ultimate greatness. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that. Philippians 2 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ. You should have this attitude. 
he says. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself. There it is. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, in his humility, Jesus recalibrated greatness. It's no longer about exalting yourself, but it's about humbling yourself. It's no longer about promoting yourself, but it's about sacrificing yourself on behalf of another. And that's what humility is. When Paul is writing about humility, he's thinking about Jesus' example. And he said, if you want unity, you can't always be promoting yourself, have, have to have your own way. It's all about you. You have to be able to humble yourself and defer to another and have the same attitude that Jesus had. You can't just dominate your way to unity. You have to assume a posture of humility. And that's why he goes on to say in Philippians 2 verse 3, he says, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or, or, or conceit, but in humility. Same word. Consider others more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. This is what leadership looks like. This is what a great marriage looks like is when you assume a posture of humility, not promoting myself, but more concerned about how do I promote you? How do I do what's best for you? How do I take a step back so that you can move forward? That attitude of humility is essential to unity. You're never gonna get unity if everybody's dominating the field, right? If everybody wants it their way, you will never get to unity. Unity starts with a posture of humility. Second thing he mentions here is not only that, but also gentleness. Look at verse 2. He said, and gentleness. Now circle the word gentleness there. Some versions say meekness. Hands up if your version says meekness. All right, anybody got a meekness? That would be an old KJV, all right? Uh, meekness, all right? Now, it, gentleness is not what you think. When, when guys think of gentle, we think that that's kind of a bad thing, right? You know, that's soft, weak, you know, gentle. Who wants to be that, right? We want to be tough and rough, right? Right, guys? Thank you. Thank you. Somebody out there is helping me. But actually, gentleness really means power under control. That's what it means. Power under control. I read a story this week about uh, three, three young men that got on a bus in Detroit. And they, they found a man, saw a man in the back of the bus, and they decided to kind of give him the business. So they went back there and they started harassing him, started calling him names. He didn't respond. They continued. They kind of amped it up, got in his face. Uh, they were trying to pick a fight with him, but he would never respond. Finally, the bus comes to a stop and the man stands up and he was quite a bit larger than what they thought he was. And then he reached in his pocket, he pulled out a business card and he handed them a business card and he walked past them and got off the bus and went on his way. And of course, as the bus pulled off, they huddled around this business card to see what it said. And on the business card, it said, uh, Joe Lewis, boxer. <laughs> Joe Lewis went on to be the heavyweight champion of the world multiple times over. In fact, Joe Lewis was so powerful in, in, in his physical strength that he was known to be able to knock out a horse with one punch. That's how strong he was. 
Now, you just think about it. If he had wanted to give them the business, he certainly could have handled these three young men. But he chose to control his strength and not exert it. Now, this is the idea here for gentleness. Gentleness means that I have tremendous power, but I choose not to exert it on my own behalf. It's very similar to humility, right? But it's power under control. Now, listen, you're never going to get to unity until you are able to control the power that you have. You say, well, Craig, what are you talking about? Control what? Well, let's, let's think about it. Number one, control your words, Right? Uh, you may have the power to blitz somebody, right? Or to s- strip them clean with your words. But, but choosing not to, s- to say it is really what advances unity. Listen, just because you feel something doesn't mean you should say it. Did y'all hear that? Y'all with me? Did you get that at home? All right. Hey, just because it's true doesn't even mean you should say it. There's some things that you just need to be quiet. And in, in silence, you are allowing room for unity. Now, I'm not saying that you can't say things, that you don't work things out. I'm not saying that you, you keep your mouth shut in all situations. But I'm saying that there's sometimes when you know you lash out, it may be true, it may be how you feel, but it's not going to move the ball forward in, in unity, then that should not be said. We have two ears and one mouth for for a reason, right? Listen twice as much as we speak. Slow to speak. Slow to become angry. That's what God's word says. So we control our our mouth. Another thing we control is our emotions. Just when your emotions flare up and you just, you feel like you have to release those emotions that we have to control those emotions. Also your actions, right? The things that you do. Uh, You may say, well, they deserve this, or I should be able to, this is my right to do that. Well, hold on just a minute. Is it advancing unity? Is this going to, at the end of it, after you say that, after you exemplify that emotion, after you do that action, is it going to bring people together, or is it going to tear them apart? Listen, this idea of gentleness is all about control. Now, ultimately, this comes from the Holy Spirit, right? Galatians 5, the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is allowing the Spirit of God to control. And I can tell you in my own personal life, there have been times when I have not been controlled. And I've said things to someone in the moment, and I regretted it. There were times that it went straight from my head out my mouth without running through the Holy Spirit filter. Can anybody relate to that? And I'm like, oh, the minute I said it, I thought, oh, I really, was it true? Yeah, probably. Did I feel it? Most certainly, but didn't need to be said. And then there have been times when I feel it coming up and, I'm, and it's in my head and I'm wanting to let it go. And then I just, nope, I'm not going to let the enemy win the day on this one. I'm going to hold that in. God's going to deal with it. I don't need to add my two cents to this situation. And, and I've always been grateful for that. Unity. It really depends on you. It depends on your attitude of humility or you're trying to get your own way. It depends on your attitude of gentleness and control or, or just feeling like you can release whatever you want to. There's one more thing that he calls us to, and that is patience. Look at it in verse 2. With patience, bearing with one another in love. Patience. 
In fact, this word patience is an interesting word in the Greek. You don't really get it in the English, but it's makrothumai. Macro means big, right? Or a lot. Macro, right? And thumos means um, anger or tempered. So it doesn't mean big temper. It means long tempered. In other words, it's like I got a long fuse. It's going to take me a long time before I get upset. Right? Long-tempered, or some versions say long-suffering. And then this whole idea of bearing with one another in love is just what it means. You see, me sometimes I just bear with this person, and I'm not going to let them get under my skin. Hey, let me just ask you something. Do not, do not repeat or say anything out loud, all right? But is there anybody that just grates on your nerves, right? No pointing, all right? No names. But somebody, when you just look at me, oh, here they are again, you know, or oh, just the, just the sound of their voices, like, you know, nails on the chalkboard, you know, or oh, they're going to, they're going to say this, and I knew they were going to say that, you know, or, or, you know, just the way they breathe, it just drives me insane, right? You know people like that, right? They just drive you crazy. And so it's just already you're on edge because, you know, this person is who they are or whatever they do that just gets under your skin. Listen, that person is your opportunity to practice patience. It's your opportunity to practice patience. I thank God that God puts people in your life, in your life so you can develop patience. You can have long suffering. You can embrace them and love them. Look, he says, bearing with one another in what? In frustration? Bearing with one another in irritability? No. Bearing with one another in, somebody tell me, love. In other words, God wants you to love them as irritating as they are. As, as just the way they are, to love them. Why does God want us to do that? Because that's what God does with you. He bears with you, doesn't he? How patient has God been in your life? How patient is he with you in your multiple failures, in your multiple attitudes that are not right? God is patient with you. He's patient with me. He's patient with us, and he loves us anyway. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to bear with them in love. Now, I want you to look at those three things. He, he talks about humility and gentleness and patience. Those things move you toward humility. Now, listen, if you lived those things out, that would be a radical thing. Would you agree with that? That would be radically different from our world that says, let them have it. Stand your ground. Uh, post your flag. You know, you know, you know, release whatever fury you have. You know, this, this whole thing that's in our culture right now. Do you understand how antithetical that is to the Scripture? And so it would be a radical thing for you to live like Jesus today. It would be so different that the world would go, what? Why are you the way that you are? But that's why I said over and over, unity depends on you. It depends on if you're going to choose these attitudes or not. Now, it, I'm not saying that you always have to agree on everything. I'm not saying that we appease people necessarily. I'm not even saying that, uh, that we should avoid hard conversations. But what I am saying is, when we pursue humility, have this attitude of humility, checking ourselves, when we choose to be under control, when we choose to be patient with others and have a long fuse, that this moves us together and not separates us apart. And that's what we all can contribute to unity. Unity can't be something that's top-down demanded. It's something that as individuals we choose to participate in every single 
day. I want you to notice, I could stop the message right there, but I'm not going to, all right? Because I want you to see something that's really cool that you may overlook. I want you to look again at verse 3. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. See that? Underline the word keep. To keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In 1787, this was the summer of the Continental Congress. Long after the Declaration of Independence, they finally come together to put together the Constitution. And, of course, for uh, quite a while, they're working, some of the greatest minds are working on this Constitution that we still have today, that still governs our country today. And at one point, Benjamin Franklin walked out of the, what we know as Independence Hall in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, I've, I got a chance to be there and sit in that uh, several years ago and reminisce on what happened there. As he walked out of Independence Hall, a woman approached him and historians aren't really clear exactly who this woman was, the way she spoke to him. This was overheard by another man. Uh, she seemed to have known him well. And she came up to uh, Dr. Franklin and said, well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? To which uh, Benjamin Franklin quipped, uh, well, madam, it's a republic if you can keep it. What he was saying is this, we have a republic, we've formed a republic, but it's fragile. It's valuable. But it's up to us to keep it together. It's up to us to protect it. And the same thing is true in our walk with God, that God is the one that creates our unity, not us. He is the one that has established unity in his church. And it's up to us to keep it. So that when we act in ways that fracture unity, we're actually fracturing the very thing that God created. You say, well, Craig, how is it that God has created this kind of unity? Well, that's really what he's talking about in verses 4 through 6. This is really the foundation of our unity. Look at it with me. He says, we have, this is all that God's done. One body. What is that one body? It's the church, the universal church, the church of all people of all times. When we get to heaven, it's going to be one church made of all different kinds of people, but we're one in Christ. One church, one body, one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit that regenerates us and makes us new. The Holy Spirit that fills, uh, fills us and empowers us and transforms us and uses us for his glory. One body, one spirit, one hope of your calling. What is that hope? The great hope, the glorious hope, the coming of Jesus Christ. And the hope that when he comes for us, that we will be with him forever. We all have that one hope. One body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords. The Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. He's coming soon. Our one Lord, one faith. That is the gospel. The one message that we preach. The one gospel we preach. That Christ came, he died, he rose again. It is the one message of hope that we have. One faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, that when we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ, that we baptize in the name and the work of Jesus Christ. We have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and then he gets to the kind of the top of it, and one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. 
You see that? All that oneness, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. All of this is our unity in Christ. God has created that. Now it's up to you to keep it. To protect it. To watch over it. Listen, folks, it's a serious thing, unity in the church. Because God has gone to great lengths to make us one. But now it's up to you to keep it. And how do you keep it? Through humility, through gentleness, and through patience, bearing with one another in love. You see, unity depends on you. It depends on me. It depends on us working together to keep this important unity. And my friends, listen, now in this day, with so much craziness happening in this world, what the world needs to see is a church that loves each other and a church that's one and a church that encourages and prays for and cares for and loves on each other with one mission and that is to advance the cause of Christ to make disciples to the ends of the world until he comes. This is really what Jesus exemplified, right? When Jesus saw the chaos of sin in this world, he made a radical choice in heaven to come to earth and live a radically different life, to preach a radical message, to reveal the Father to us. He loved a radical love. He died a radical death. He rose again in a radical way. And he ascended to the Father and even now he offers new life and new hope and unity and oneness that can only be found in him to those who place their trust and faith in him. That's the hope that we have. That's the message we have. And so really, you can't be right and one with each other until you're right and one with God. Unity comes from Him. We can't ever be at peace with each other until we're at peace with God. We can't be reconciled with each other until we're reconciled with God. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? And I want to give you an opportunity right now to be right with God. Maybe the reason why things are so crazy at home and so crazy and divided in your own life is because the source of unity, which is Jesus, is not center in your own life. Maybe right now you realize that your sinfulness has caused your relationships to fracture and divide in every area of your life. And what you know you need is Christ to fill you with this spirit. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. You need to be united with Jesus. You need to be right with God. And I want to give you an opportunity right now where you are to say yes to Jesus, to ask him to do something new in your life, to change you, to save you, to redeem you, to make you a new person that is an agent of unity and not getting in the way of unity. So if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I wanna be in that prayer, please pray for me. I don't know for sure that I'm right with God, but I wanna be, I wanna be changed, I wanna be different. I I wanna know that my sin's forgiven. Pastor, pray for me. Just lift up your hand right now, and I just want to pray for you. I'm not going to call you out, but I will pray for you and know that God's at work in your life. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Anybody else? Pastor, pray for me. I need to be right with God. I need to be, I need to be saved. I need to be changed. All right? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, put your hands down. If you lift your hand, just pray this prayer with me, just right where you are. God sees your heart. He knows your heart. Just pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I know that I've sinned against you. I know I've gone my own way. But I believe you died on a cross for me. I believe you rose again from the dead. And right now I'm asking you, please forgive me. Please change me. Please make me a a new person. Lord, I want to be right with you. Now help me be right with the people in my life. Today I choose to follow you all the days of my life. And Father, I pray for us as a body of believers, both in the house and those that are joining us online today. Lord, we live in a very divided world, a very hostile world, a very angry world. But Lord, as your people, we are keepers of the hope of the world, and that is Jesus and the gospel. Lord, I pray that we as a church would be one, that we'd be patient with one another and bearing with one another in love. I pray, God, that we would control our words and our actions and our, and our posts and our, and our responses, Lord, that we would be controlled by your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that we would not have to have our own way, but always have an attitude of humility that, Father, we would please you in our words, please you in our attitudes, please you, and we would look more and more like Jesus, that we would live a life worthy of the calling you have given us. And as we do that, God, the people from the outside would see us and say, I want that. Lord, may we be that kind of church in this time that exalts you, Lord. Thank you for the hope that we have, the confidence we have in you pray this in Jesus' name.